Good day, loyal SSC listener. Uh, Just coming at you pre-podcast here with a little heads up on today's recording. It sounds a bit like Tim recorded his side underwater this week. However, we really liked how this episode turned out, and we wanted to share it with you all anyways. We will make sure to work out these issues for future episodes, and we just hope you really enjoy this one. Thanks for being a loyal listener. Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. I'm Tim. And I'm Tay. What's going on today, movie fans? We're here. It is the end of February. Uh, we just have discussed what we're doing for our March content. Um, but, you know, looking around at what's going on in the movies right now, it's an exciting time. Uh, and mm-hmm. I don't know, Tim, it just feels like we've been off this for a long time. So sorry for like the loose, rusty introduction today. Yeah, it'll be, it might take us a little bit to, to get the momentum back because I mean, we were just, I think, you know, working with a guest on the social network, we had Kyle Snar on this great episode. If you haven't checked it out, go do that. Um, I think the scheduling just worked out with Kyle that we did it super early in our cycle. And now we're doing this one super late in our cycle. Uh, so it does feel like it's been a while since we've been recording. Uh, so we got some stuff to catch up on and some stuff that really like, I, I think we mentioned it in the social network episode. Um, that episode had too much stuff to do to even do our usual catch up. So we've got some, oh my God, some layover yeah. from that as well. Um, back in, that was a jam packed episode. Yeah. So it would have been back in January that I caught a couple of the movies that are, you know, the major sort of talking points, the things that are going to be in consideration for the Oscars coming up. Um, and then Tay, I know you got to put at least one of these away. So, I mean, I, I'll just briefly mention, because I, I don't think if you caught Zona Interest yet, I don't think you've had the chance. I did not, yeah. no. That is playing pretty consistently at our local film house at the Performing Arts yeah. Center around here regularly. I think they kind of, they're betting on that one as being, it's going to move a lot of tickets, and I, I think they're right. I, um, the film house, I'd say, I don't think we talked about it too much, and it is extremely local content, so we won't bore our non-Southern Ontario, non-Niagara listeners with it too much but i do think it caters to a bit of an older crowd and so i think he they kind of pick their oscar contenders very specifically and they're more in the zone of interest camp than than maybe poor things not that they're not showing poor things as well um and the film house is also showing a couple other movies i'm very excited to see in the in the near future promised land that mads mickelson danish western i I know what i just said is contradictory but (laughs) it makes sense check out the trailer and uh, a taste of things, which uh, I can't wait. I think I'm gonna catch that in a week. But the, that um, movie, uh, the monk and the gun, is looking really cool too, and that's playing at, true. The, at the theater yeah. too, uh, yeah. pretty soon, and maybe a couple times throughout the month. But I mean, very briefly, I think I maybe mentioned this through one of our Instagram posts too on one of our Sunday roundups. I did catch Zone of Interest. Uh, I caught it at the Hamilton Playhouse. It was a great presentation. That is a movie where if you can see in the theater, absolutely do. It's one of those sound design star movies they're very like it's jonathan glazer he's obviously i think he's a very um full picture director right he keeps everything in mind i think if you've seen his other movies you know that he cares just as much about sound as he does the site and zone of interest is like there's a big sort of thematic um undercurrent with the sound at play uh so definitely go catch it in the theater if you can uh, that's kind of an important part of it I'd i've heard say. some uh controversial reviews about the movie and it's they're kind of honestly they're pissing me off a little bit i don't like when people just bring their own political 
agendas into a movie and then all they talk about is what they had as their preconceived notion after the movie Mm -hmm. and so i'm i haven't seen the film yet but i just from what i've heard it's like people are kind of annoying me on the subject i'm happy to hear you're not coming out at like full of complaints because i don't know i think glazer's a very good filmmaker and uh i don't know i trust his vision so whatever i go in there and get i'm not gonna i promise i'm not gonna come out and pull it apart like a lot of these people are but uh, yeah. I'm just excited, you know. I think it's yeah, a good I think the movie the movie is, I would say, exciting in its execution. Um, it also, though, like it depends on where you come from in terms of being like the way that it does things. Are those innovative or are they obvious? Because like they do, they they. Wow, it's so weird to talk about this vaguely. I think they're very effective, and they're the kind of things where, like we talked about before, where you see it and you're like, why hasn't this already been done? Right. It feels obvious the moment you're looking at it, but like that's very easy to say after the fact. No one's done it this way before. Um, so all it's sort of the execution against the subject matter. Um, and otherwise, there are a couple choices that are, I think, very uh, they're worth sort of digging into. But I think you're right. Like a movie like this is going to attract a pretty frustrating discussion. And I, I know I know you're not really on social media at all. And I got off Twitter a couple of years ago when someone I didn't really care for bought it and started changing it. So I'm also like not, I'm just, you know, I, I check out reviews on Letterboxd and I follow some movie podcasts, but like I don't read a lot of traditional reviews anymore. And I definitely don't get in the comment section on anything. And I would recommend that to everyone. Uh, there, are, there are one or two film reviewers who are like following David Sims. I'll usually check out his reviews in the Atlantic, but that's because I follow his podcast too. And sometimes I just want to know what he formally wrote on something. Um, He's a good reviewer. Yeah. And, and I mean, I got to be honest, like, what I want out of a film review is usually like, can you find an interesting way to write about the movie? It's not even like you need a hot take, but I'll give an example, a writer that I really like who writes in the same sort of length and format as film reviews is this food writer. Her name is Helen Rosner. She writes for the New Yorker and she only writes on occasion when she's got something she's interested in writing about. And she just, to me, is kind of like the platonic ideal of someone I want to read in that format and length because she gives you a good reason to read it. Like it's fun to read it. She enters with an interesting sort of hook and then eventually gets into something, something about, you know, food culture, dining culture. She's got like an award-winning review about Olive Garden, right? Like, uh, so, and she compares it to like Gauguin paintings. Um, so that, that I don't really see that in film review writing a lot, but I also like, I appreciate the fact that film reviewers, like maybe they're writing five a week. Not every one of them can be like this big creative swing. Sometimes you just have to find a way to distill whether or not a movie is worth seeing or not. And for what reasons, uh, whether or not a movie is, is successful and what it's trying to do, you know, to be like a useful critic though, I think you need to have a good knowledge base of the subject matter you're covering. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about like food reviews and like this, this writer you're mentioning, she probably just, has an outstanding sense of like coverage like she's covered all these different areas and can then come at any specific review with a good angle a good perspective a thorough perspective i'm not really one to look at reviews either but what i found with this movie in particular is that uh people who want to have opinions on oscar nominated films just come out in droves to see stuff like this Mm-hmm. And then are massively disappointed because it's not exactly what they thought it would be. Yeah. And we, you and I talk about expectations all the time, so I'm not going to rant, rant about that. But people who just feel the need to put their opinions out there because this is an Oscar buzz movie, 
Um, not all your opinions matter. <laughs> yeah, and I'll just I'll circle back on something you said in there. Just a reminder, like your expectations are your own worst enemy, and like they're they're a real threat to um, a work of art's ability to breathe. I'd say to not get too pretentious about it, but like that's a good way of saying it. That's why I mean that's why you don't you don't Taylor you don't watch a lot of trailers really. I I still watch trailers because I really like. I like the exercise of the art of a trailer. I'm interested in how movies are, are, are conceived, but like I'd say the the ideal experience for any movie is knowing nothing about it. And it's, right? it's tough not to watch trailers. But though. that's it's hard to sell a movie you know nothing about. And I mean, we will circle back into this. Art and commerce is a lot about what we're going to talk about today, and that's sort of the push and pull. Um, I'd love to use that uh, segue, but we do have to talk about poor things because we've both seen it. Yeah. Um, you caught it just recently, right? Yeah, I saw it on uh, like a few days ago, and that movie was awesome. <laughs> like that is, um, I'm, I, I guess I shouldn't spoil our our year in review episode coming up soon, but I mean, do, do that movie is going to be one I'm going to talk about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, this is, I think, uh, one of the more important pieces of filmmaking in the past several years. Um, kind of branch it, it branches off into a bunch of subjects that we've covered kind of recently on the show. Actually, we, you know, mm. even back to the social network episode, I talked a bit about surrealism and entering into realism and what that can do. And not to say that poor things is anything like social network, but the way that Yorgos Lanthimos, the director of the film, is changing our idea of what is approachable for in terms of content matter uh that breaches surrealism mm. i think that he's really on to something he's really doing some unique things with his filmmaking um the favorite really challenged your traditional portrayal of victorian era people and yeah. ideology and this took that and <laughs> flipped it on its head and spun it around a bunch of times like this is uh, this is a wild commentary on people and sex and the world at large. I think it's amazingly fulfilled. I think the performances were incredible, and it's just nice to see someone be so goddamn creative. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's that kind of thing where I don't, I don't know if we could have asked for anything more after the favorite. Where you're like, listen, I think he, I think I he kind of like found a way to get into the academy and get into the popular conversation in a way that you really can't with the killing of a sacred deer like almost at all and you kind of can with lobster lobster kind of like raises your you know it's it's so i think lobster is, has a pretty solid elevator pitch it's easy to sort of communicate with the ideas in that movie and then when you see it you really get the authorial style of yorgos and the way that people talk which even that he's moved beyond a bit he found a way to have Emma Stone talk like a Yorgos character in this, but it's justified within the movie instead of just being like the framework that he puts on dialogue, like he did with some of his older movies. But sorry, to, to go back to that, I think when you get Yorgos having his success in The Favorite and you're like, yeah, what's next? What's he going to do? Is it going to be like his ultimate blank check, what he's wanted to do the whole time, and now he's got the money and the, and the, the cachet to pull it off? Is it going to temper what we love about him? Is it going to be safer? Or is it going to be so weird that it's inaccessible? And, like, he's just, like, he brought out something that, again, people can see as an Oscar contender that I think is making a great amount, like, a, a solid return yeah, I'd say so. on the investment. And it's just undeniably, like, interesting. It's creative. It's funny. It's funny. Right? Like, I, I saw it, like, 
it's not like there it, the theater was probably a third full, but I, I would say I was also maybe in the second week of screenings. Um, people were having a great time. Uh, and, and, and you're right. Like it just, it's going, it's got some actor noms. Um, I would probably give it to Emma Stone. Um, and Mark Buffalo. I think, yeah, yeah. Mark Ruffalo too, who like, apparently like I, you know, I say, and I, I watched those actors round tables and like, he said this in a couple of interviews, but he was like kind of begging Yorgos to not cast him. Cause he's like, I'll do it if you want me to, but I really think I might ruin this movie that I'm not right for this. He's and, perfect. I like he's so he's funny. He's so funny. It's so good. I love, and it's like a really strong supporting actor year. It is like, like it, a yeah, really good crowd. And I, I, I'm, you know, I'm not going to be disappointed personally if he if he walks away with it because I think it's great work by him, and I think he's such a necessary character for for what the movie's saying. Like it, it really like Emma Stone's character throws so much in the air, like pitches so much, and it all lands on Mark Ruffalo, and it's that that necessary like beginning and end um to sort of how someone's navigating society and the things that we all think are set and expected and i don't know like we there's so much to talk about in this movie but yeah i i really like it too it ranks yes. super high it's just very gratifying to see um yorgos continue to be able to pull stuff off like this and it'll get i think stone will get the oscar and you know you can tie that to the movie and i think that's just going to continue to keep Yorgos as like a a known creator in the western filmmaking uh uh sphere and he's gonna get to keep making movies that he thinks are interesting and I, you know this is fantastic i'm looking forward to seeing it again because i do think there's some pacing things that the first time through did not affect me at all but i'm wondering if the second time i'm gonna be like you know what i know what happens in the scene and that kind of robs it of of my of, right. of, of yeah. being compelling rewatchability is an important factor for me yeah yeah and uh i mean like good old good old willem dafoe i just never get tired of that guy could never get enough of his scenes yeah. in the movie i was just like yeah. where's he going don't leave don't leave the scene yeah yeah so i mean it it's undoubtedly showing somewhere near you uh unless you live in a more remote place than than even taylor and i do in terms of like you know uh, wide release, limited release movies. Um, so go find poor things and check it out. Yeah, I don't think I don't like. It's not a waste of your time, even if you don't like the movie. Like you're gonna see some stuff you haven't seen before. You see pretty exciting, like um, mainstream art, right? It's an art movie that that has like that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, like uh, 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 profile. Yeah, if you really want an olive branch into the more artistic filmmaking, this is a really good one. And I'd say that about Yorgos' movies at large, too. And mm -hmm. just one other thing I wanted to say about the movie was that uh, it was very much an amalgamation of his previous works, which I really mm -hmm. like to see when a director makes like a big project like this. You can see threads back to Dogtooth, which is one of my favorites of his. Mm -hmm. You see so much of the preoccupation from The Lobster about relationships and the tenuous expectations that we have for the opposite sex yep. things like that um that he's still toying with and really making even bolder and better statements about now than he was mm -hmm. 10 years ago when he was making these yep. movies i think he's just developing into a better filmmaker more accessible filmmaker but also uh riding that line between challenging and accessible which is just perfect for me i i love when a director can 
tap into an audience but still say yeah. what they want to yeah, say he still feels like he's being true to himself or the self of him that we know from his works yes but everyone you know you again you look up any reviews people are like this is one of the most relevant movies of the year it's talking about these things that are very important talking about gender gender identity and and yeah all the things you said expectations uh, in relationships in society uh, frameworks placed on women thing like that um, which uh, we won't speak to here but I'm certain we're going to do some Yorgos at some point. That's undeniable, given that we just we just raved about him and talked about all these movies that we like. Um, but yeah, so I mean, that's that's sort of like mainstream art meeting, I'd say. Uh, more Way more so than Zone of Interest, say more so than the other movies that are in the conversation for the Oscars this year. Um, but when you're talking about the mainstream, like Tay and I were looking forward in the summer and thinking like, you know, we've done blockbusters most summers. We got Jaws last year, Raiders, things like that. And we're trying to figure out where we're going to go from here. And we figured why not go with like, you know, one one of the top blockbusters of all time. Uh, so we think we're going to make at least some of you nerds happy next month when we talk about George Lucas's Star Wars, the, uh, the original. Um, next month, that's going to be what we're talking about. We'll catch a vote uh, very soon as of the recording of this episode um, for a couple of the other movies in the, you know, I don't know, was it 13 film Star Wars cinematic universe? Um, might be 12. Are we at that many now? Well, you got the nine and then you got Rogue One, Solo. I feel like there's another one I'm not thinking of. Eh, maybe that's it. Thank God. We're only at 11. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, look forward to that. Um, I got to tell you, I watched Star Wars last night, and we, we bit really bit something off because I don't know what we're going to say that's new about Star Wars. But if you want to sort of get together with us in a, in two weeks and uh, just sort of chat about, like, why it still matters, why it's important, how it spawned the extremely valuable brand that it is the billion dollar sale a couple years ago, things like that. Um, we'll dig into star Wars and then we'll, we'll dig into one of the lesser probably talked about ones for our vote, but we'll see how that turns out. Yeah. I got a lot of novel things to say about star Wars, man. So don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> so come back for that in March, but in the meantime, we're, we got to follow up on our vote that uh, Tay and I really put our thumb on the scale for this month. Uh, yes. And thank you for following us. Yeah, we did. Uh, we did a vote on some other like sort of true story movies that I think also were in the fallout of the social network or roughly at the same time. And we really wanted to talk about this movie because uh, it's distinctly Canadian. Uh, we're, we're proud of it. And, and frankly, like uh, a not consider inconsiderable chunk of our taxes uh, helped pay for this movie. So uh, we, we want to be able to to bring it back around and maybe even benefit from it, uh, get a couple listeners on board with it. So today we're talking about BlackBerry, which charts the major chapters mm -hmm. in the life of the once iconic smartphone and the people who created it and sold it. Starring Jay Baruchel and Glenn Howerton and directed and written by Matt Johnson, BlackBerry was released May 12th, 2023. Um, a little bit more uh, paperwork here. Uh, it had a budget of around five million uh, USD, as I understand it. And I actually thought it. I my assumption was it did well, and I was a little surprised to find out that its box office was a uh, two point nine million. So uh, it is not necessarily a success uh, monetarily, but I think in a number of other ways, people are really considering it, it, it a success. I think it's just outside of that sort of Oscar consideration. 
I think it could have in there, I think it could have maybe gotten a nom for screenplay or a supporting actor if they had really sunk some money into it. But I'm not surprised that after the box office, they were maybe like, you know what, we're not going to put any more money into this. I don't think you could have described a Canadian film more perfectly, Tim. Right. <laughs> all of, then, all uh, of the factors are there. Right. Good movie, just outside of Oscar conversation, didn't make its money back, yeah. even though it had to dip its toe into all these American markets and theater chains, mm -hmm. even though it is a Canadian story. Um, a relevant story that uh, to Canadians that uh, matters to Canadians and the rest of the world doesn't know it's about yeah. Canada. Uh, all these factors are the most Canadian things about Canadian filmmaking. And uh, I think to top it, like just to top off the paperwork, Matt Johnson, the director, is probably one of the strongest Canadian voices we have right now. So it made this movie very exciting to talk about. And uh, like I said earlier, thank you for voting for it, all you listeners out there. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, our tagline is rule the world one minute at a time, which I mean, it seems perfectly uh, functional. Right. Yeah, sure. Mm. I felt like there would be like something a bit more Blackberry slogan yeah. connected there, but I didn't feel like they put a tagline very often with this. And in fact, like if you want to talk about the promotion, I think you're one of the people I talked to who like you saw the trailer and you're like, eh, doesn't doesn't look great, you know? It looks very middle of the road. Well, I remember you know? that being just a talking point because the 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 reason I watched the trailer is because people were like, have you mm. seen how bad this trailer is? And when I watched, it, I was like, that is a bad trailer. I really did think so. But then, you know, everyone started saying the buzz was good about mm -hmm. the movie. It got really good reviews out the gate in Berlin, I think it premiered. And as soon as it started getting the really good reviews, I knew the movie was going to be good because mm -hmm. really bad trailer with really good reviews. Canadian movie, a guy who likes to pull the rug out from his audience a little bit might make a trailer like that. I had all these like high hopes that all these mm -hmm. things were going to check. And I was like, for me, at least personally speaking, I was right. I thought the movie was great. Um, far exceeds what the trailer sells. Yeah. Yeah, no. And I think it, it was a bit of a critical darling. Not again, just not enough to like get real awards consideration. But I, I feel like people saw what was going on. I think they see how carefully it was produced and put together and intentionally and I think it's not a very showy movie in so many ways, but we'll talk about some of the ways in which it's it's doing a lot of work. Um, and then, I mean, like, just I think, yeah, if they wanted to stick a little bit more money into it, I think Glenn Howerton could have gotten a, a supporting actor nom. He wouldn't have won, but they that nom was certainly possible because um, it's kind of that big performance. And it feels like everyone kind of likes Glenn Howerton, but he's just never really gotten that sort of movie thing. We'll, we'll circle back to and, him because actually... There's the physical transformation there yeah. too, right? That usually is kind of one of the check marks on an Oscar yeah, performance. Yeah, it's got all these things that, that the awards like, you know? But yeah, I, I thought of Blackberry originally because... So I'm a big Matt Johnson fan. He's got a TV show, which I will plug, even though we don't talk about TV shows on this podcast. Um Got a TV show made here in Canada called Nirvana, the band, the show. If you're Canadian, you can watch it for free on CBC Gem, uh, which is just a horrible viewing experience. You watch the same three commercials every eight minutes, but it is what it is. Um, and then Johnson made a couple of movies too, all of which are of a similar style, which are documentary style. And they very closely blur the line between what is real and what isn't. You can't really tell. They use a lot of editing tricks. They use very carefully placed actors among a lot of real people to build out these 
sort of fantastical plots in this episode about a band trying to get a show at a, at a particular um, like restaurant and bar on, on in Toronto. Um, kind of harebrained schemes every time and you know they escalate to having like a full fire on the front of a facade of a building in public and you cannot tell wait is that just the best cgi i've ever seen and they sunk the entire budget into the fire cgi did they trick people into letting them light this fire like it's it's all this how can you tell and it's stuff that matt johnson very clearly likes um so i've been following him for a while and i was very excited about this movie and in one of the interviews he mentioned that like this that BlackBerry has a direct social network call-out, which, and we'll say right now, if you haven't watched BlackBerry, go check it out, because uh, there will be, I mean, spoilers in general. Um, but the social network is sort of, he lined up the ending of BlackBerry with the ending of the social network, where you have Mark Zuckerberg sitting there refreshing the friend request uh, from Erica Albright. And uh, the, the ending of BlackBerry, not to call it out in detail, has a very sort of similar thing where, this creator's sort of core problem, it, it exists at the beginning of the movie, and he's not really past it at the end of the movie, despite how much in his life has changed. And just uh, the Matt Johnson note on the final shot is that it's his Indiana Jones uh, reference, and it's very blatant. Yeah, it's also the the top men reference. <laughs> it's it's very good. Or it's the shot very good. With um, that one. Yeah. And he lovingly... Yeah said like admitted to that in an interview that i watched with him which was nice to hear because it's very obvious and on the nose but mm -hmm. the movie also has some specific reference to uh some specific references to other movies including indiana jones right so they actually the characters yeah. watch the movie in blackberry they watch indiana jones so it was just another great like touch point uh, nice reference and just to kind of go to what you were saying about matt johnson i think so much of his content up until Blackberry was predicated on the idea of blurring that line between reality and fiction, which is not only a very Canadian thing to do, a very Canadian preoccupation, but it serves to like almost be uh, like undercut yourself as like a filmmaker. It almost tends to take the air out of it and almost take the seriousness out of it, but yet calls attention to a lot of very real world things and it kind of, by blurring that line i think it removes a sense of responsibility uh for the hardships that he's depicting but also like because it creates like a sense of humor about it and we as the audience are aware that it's fiction or it's or we're constantly struggling with the idea of how is this real or how is this depicting reality but it's still fiction and that um i think that conflict in our minds as audience members is what really brings out the humor and like the affective responses from his content. Um, Blackberry is his first foray into something that is not fully making fun of itself, but yet yeah. you still have some of these elements in it. Um, this is like a, this is a filmmaker who's doing the docufiction thing, taking on a biopic and he's blending his style into it perfectly. I mm -hmm. think to create a very uh, competent biopic, mm -hmm. but, done in a more interesting way, much more along the lines of Danny Boyle's Steve Jobs, yeah. where you're picking moments of impact and vignettes that contribute to a person's overall impact on a technology. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a very effective way to create a docu, uh, like something that's based on documentary. Yeah, there is, I think, I think you're right. Like you mentioned that, um, 
very Canadian sort of preoccupation. I think that's true. I do want to briefly call out that also, I think the more famous or well-known version of this right now is Nathan Fielder and the work that he's doing. Also Canadian. Yeah. He started on this hour as 22 minutes. Just want to credit that. Um, and they're doing similar things, but not precisely similar. And I think you're right that like there, there is this undercurrent of, of humor and even self-deprecation about the entire thing. Cause the arc of the movie is, I mean, I got this quote from Matt Johnson where he, he's talking about the, the, the most basic concept of this is that they referring to these Canadians invented the smartphone and nobody cares. That's funny to me. It is funny. Right? He's, he is doesn't funny. think it's like a travesty. And he's like, I got to make a movie to give us credit. He's like, no, like let's, let's really consider that Canadian identity that we did this thing. And internally, like we have like, again, Canadian, I'll, I'll put a link to it. Cause it's very funny to me that some American viewers are going to click it and watch it. Um, I'll link to a supercut of heritage moments because uh, that's something Canadians grew up with where yes. it'd be on our public access television or our government funded television. These little like skits about like, you know, uh, uh, basketball, which is technically invented in Canada or penicillin, all these things where it's like, we are very distinct about like, listen, we made that. And the Americans are like, we don't care. It's ours. Right. Like, I, I, I don't care that you made that. And so I think it's almost it, like no one will believe you. It's yeah, it's such like it's like it's like no one will believe you, and I won't even have to try to steal it from you. No one will even care to find out, right? So I think it's so funny that he's that he is aware that it's funny. He doesn't consider it like a national tragedy, but almost like a distinctly Canadian thing that like Mike Lazaridis and and his is you know partner Doug and with the necessary but kind of evil help of Jim Balsilli falsely excuse me um created the smartphone and then had their lunch eaten by apple when there's this sort of core idea there that like people don't want a perfect user-friendly device there is a degree to i want something that's cooler i want the next thing and that's what lazaritas could never really latch on to um uh, which is which is all just yeah. They were too focused on making a good product, not yeah. the product that people wanted. And then I mean, the the B story in the movie is is Balsilli trying to get an NHL team uh, and bring it to his hometown, which is again like hockey is so Canadian. It's distinctly Canadian, um, but like the American portion of the league is so much bigger in so many ways that they just like laugh falsely back to Waterloo. And again, this movie was originally called Waterloo. And then I'm sure someone in the in an executive seat was like, that means nothing. Can we call it something that's going to have a little bit more name recognition? And they had to call it Blackberry. I think people would naturally associate it with like the British Waterloo or the Abba song. Or, or the Abba song. <laughs> that song kicks ass. Napoleon's Conquest. Uh, yeah. You know, there's a bunch of things you'd associate with Waterloo before the place that Rim was yeah. founded. I mean, not that this is the Canadian, but it, it, it's it's in the States, too. It's all in the, the New World, North America, for lack of a better term. But, like, yeah, all our cities are named after French and British locations, right? Um, or, or Scottish, in the, in, the, in the case of my hometown. But that, that's, the, uh, <laughs> that's the most info our viewers, our listeners are ever going to get about where I grew up. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, Taylor, I know you, because you're a hockey fan, I am not you have actual like built-in core memories about ball silly yeah and yeah i do the saga that's depicted in here where i didn't know about ball silly until i saw this movie um 
So I think if you want to talk about that for a little bit, that'd <laughs> yeah. be cool. And then we can talk about blackberries. Um, oh my God. So where, where do we begin? Because, so I had like a very personal connection to the story. My dad actually like moved to Waterloo in 2000, uh, like seven, eight. So right around the time of like the Blackberry peak. And it was to the point where like my dad was a, a business operator and he was pre- like he felt that he needed to own a BlackBerry, or he was not going to make business connections in Southern Ontario. That was that was the extent <laughs> we were at here. That's what we're talking. Yeah, about. Yeah, man, you're gonna get you're gonna get like locked out. Yeah, and so my dad would have been one of the people who bought the, uh, the notorious BlackBerry Storm. That is the finale of the film where so that, that's that one at the end, right? The one yes. made in China. Yeah, that is a terrible phone. So like that's how close I am to this that part of the story. And then um on the hockey side of things, I was a kid who grew up watching SportsNet or Sports Center every morning. So when you hear about a guy, a billionaire, a Canadian mogul who wants to move an NHL team uh, to a city that's 45 minutes away from where you live, it's very exciting news when you're a kid in Canada. And I actually thought that there was a chance of a team coming to Hamilton, Ontario, which is, like I said, about 45 minutes away from where we are. And it would have been like a competitive team to the Toronto Maple Leafs market. And that was a big, um, that was a huge hurdle right away that doesn't get talked about enough. Um, That was a big part of this whole thing. But in the film, they only mention really one one very small slice of this sale. And I actually think it's one of the movie's like biggest... Uh, drawbacks is it didn't really dive into like how persistent Balsilli was about this avenue of his, what he was doing. And yeah, ba- so basically to like summarize the story, it wasn't just one NHL team he tried to move. He tried to move three different and re- maybe even possibly a fourth team to Southern Ontario over the course of about six years. He tried to buy the Pittsburgh Penguins. He tried to buy the Nashville Predators. He tried to buy the Phoenix Coyotes. And then he tried to buy... Uh, reportedly this is a rumor the, the buffalo sabers or sorry the uh he tried to buy and this is just a rumor the atlanta thrashers um so the 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 takeaway from all this is that the reason why he kept getting rejected was cuz he kept getting too far ahead and kept um advancing legal procedures far faster than the nhl was comfortable with which is an organization that runs through bureaucracy, and Balsilli was not very good at handling any of this. So literally, he got very far in some of these deals, but they, the NHL just eventually decided they didn't want him to be one of the owners of the league to, because of his brash personality, because he kept breaking rules, because he didn't do what they were telling him he should be doing to like play the game to get a franchise. And these are all really important things that I know about how the league works. We held a vote with the other owners, and unfortunately, it went against you. 26 to 0. Hold on a second. Hold on. Hold on. I thought we had a deal. When did the other owners even get... I'm sorry. What what changed here, man? The owners did not find you to be of good character and integrity. I don't know what the hell that means. It's actually very funny in retrospect to see how badly he really frigged up this process because... Mm-hmm. If he just played the game, he could have had any one of these franchises he tried to move. But because he was so headstrong about 
fulfilling his plan, which was as soon as I buy the team, I'm moving it. He pissed off a lot of people. And that's kind of like a, the reason why I felt like I could go on this rant about the movie Blackberry is because it's such a fundamental part of what they're saying about his character in general throughout the movie is he's this guy who just didn't know when to stop transgressing the line. Yeah. Yeah, no, and it, it's really interesting because, like, he really... I think the movie shows him as having pretty yes. good, like, yeah. business understanding, right? Like, he, his pitches are good. His reasoning is good about, like, wait, what is the actual core value that I have to sell about what we're doing here? I'm not selling a perfect phone product because, like, no one, no one's buying that. I can't even sell the technical side, like, server architecture, all the stuff we're going to get into our scene. But I think he understands... You know, whether it's that Harvard education or he's just got that mindset, he knows how to explain these things to the people with the money. But you're right. It also the movie is careful to set up that like he gets fired because like he cannot get his ego out of it. Yes, that's right. The opening. And there's something innately egotistical about like, I don't want to buy Maple Leaf season tickets and sit in a box there and feel powerful. I want a team in Cops Coliseum in Hamilton. Right. Um I want my team and I want to, I want to show off to carry Elvis and invite him to come see hockey, which he doesn't understand because he's an American nobody. Right. And, and yeah, you're talking about promising business moves here. It's not like the NHL just rejected him outright every time. Like he, like I said, he got far in each process here, except for maybe the mm-hmm. final one, but it was just, he just was too uh, headstrong and wanted it to go too fast. And mm-hmm. that's just not the way these kind of proceedings work. And his lack of understanding of that is what led to his downfall. And then the downfall kind of co- like uh, was around the same time that BlackBerry started losing its stock and the iPhone came out and kind of destroyed BlackBerry. So it was like a pretty abrupt end to quite an incredible business story. Yeah, And, th- and that's the kind of thing like th- this B plot in this movie, I don't think necessarily acts as like uh, an ideal foil to the a plot like when i you agree sort of start trying to align like blackberry versus um all silly's nhl attempts i don't think they line up squarely and it does kind of feel like they're like this is that true story thing that we want to put in there and i also feel like to an extent they're like this is a distinctly canadian thing that we want to put in there this guy's like this guy is like almost like a bad canadian right because they give all this stuff where like he's telling lazaritas like you say sorry all the time uh, you have to be more cutthroat there's all these things that are maybe non-canadian about him and then the way that he tries to strong arm a team into another canadian town it's almost like like this bad Canadian thing that they have to expose about Balsillie. And it makes it maybe thematically a slightly messier movie, but I just like, I don't know, it could be our bias, or I think it's just a fun aspect to watch because you get to watch Glenn Howard and go off and get more and more unhinged. And you see sort of like from the, the early parts of the movie where he's sitting there watching hockey on TV and he's got this stony look on his face to the end of the movie where he's like, I am so close to being what I always want to be, which is like a rich team owner, right? That can invite people to the box. Or yeah. Um, there's just that there's a time jump in the middle of the movie that I don't think allows enough uh, space for that development of that idea. Like you don't see the seed yeah. of the idea of him owning the team being planted. And you just kind of jump into like him being in the middle of all these behind the scenes discussions about buying a team which he can't keep under wraps um and what i what bothered me about that is is just the fact that i know that this was a multi-year multi t 
team process. Like he tried to buy three different teams over the course of this very small amount of time. And it could likely be its own movie, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's its own story without a doubt. It just happens that he, he also was connected to like one of the most critical Canadian technology stories to ever occur as well. My only issue with the way they showed it in the movie is that um, you just didn't see, like I said, you didn't see that seed. So you didn't see the separation between him and Blackberry. Like he seemed very much like proud of his company. And then you get that kind of time jump in the film. And all of a sudden he's more into this idea of owning the NHL team. And I think if we saw like just one scene extending the development of what happened in that process you'd get a lot more affect out of that part of the story, even though they, cause it ends up being a bit of humor. Like it's a humorous beat when he goes to the NHL board of governors meeting and he swears at them he all and tells them all the F vampires. off. I'm from Waterloo where the vampires hang out. <laughs> yes. It's, which is incredible. Yeah. It's so, it's so funny. Yeah. And the fact that it, the whole bit leads to that scene just makes me think that they felt it was like a less substantial information beat more of like a comedy note that they could add to the film um whereas i thought they could have multi-purposed it into a character arc between uh balsilli and mike lazaridis where you could have had like them have that kind of like recognition like they want different things which would have been stronger for me if it if it served the multi-purpose there um, and maybe that's just being too critical yeah. but i think if you're being generous it's extremely subtle right like they lay just like the least touched upon seed when Elwis, um, as the guy from Palm Pilot, is um, basically like talking down to them, like basically big, like strong arguing that like he's he's a bigger version of their company from America, and even though his product is worse and they've been less successful, he's uh, he's their stock value is just going to allow him to uh, uh, perform a hostile takeover on Rim. Um, and then at the close of that scene, you know, he, Paul Silly asks him if he likes hockey and he says he can't stand it. So I think it's extremely subtle that there is like, Paul Silly has like a Canadian inferiority complex and he's sort of the villain of the movie because as Canadians, we don't want anyone to act like they're inferior or have a problem with that. Like it's a distinct part of our identity, but like we should rise above it. But I also don't think that there's necessarily anyone being like, fulfilling that part of the story either if anything it's doug who just disappears from the conversation right he just leaves in terms of the movie he leaves quietly extremely rich right and continues to enjoy watching movies and being with his friends and doing what he enjoys doing right instead of trying to make the perfect thing or make make the money and, Mm -hmm. and prove to american counterparts that that we're we're as great as them right I think that's there. I wouldn't say it's perfectly realized, but I can. I think I I can see it. Yeah, you you bring up a good point there, where Balsilli almost serves as like your your perfect Canadian villain archetype, because he yeah. acknowledges the inferiority complex and chooses to not like build his own thing, but tries to join the party. Uh, tries yeah. to join the bigger picture instead of forging a more distinct distinctive identity for himself and i think the blurring of that ideology and his uh his overall viewpoints mm-hmm. is what makes him like a perfect canadian villain for a canadian film that actually is addressing so many aspects of 
Canadian film culture, history, and actual the cur- the Canadian zeitgeist, which is not very common to see in films. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to point out one very cool thing that the movie does. Um, Matt Johnson knows Canadian cinema very, very well. I would guess that he was educated in somewhat in film mm-hmm. school but uh because he has like a a very academic sense for documentary and docufiction mm-hmm. and the history of it all in Canada and also the one of the most prominent features that distinguishes a Canadian film is uh that I've that I've learned is a sense of placelessness mm-hmm. which is integral to creating a lack of identity which was important for Canadian films to be made a long time ago when, uh, in the 80s and 90s when no country would buy a Canadian film if it looked like it was actually just taking place in Canada. So we relied on this idea of placelessness and ambiguity to fit into a very uh, general film culture. And what he does in the very, like in like the second shot of this movie is he racks focus to the Waterloo Water Tower, which I thought was a phenomenal touch. Yeah, This isn't a placeless movie. This is a distinctly Canadian movie in a distinctly Canadian city and it's told to you right away and it's the actual water tower that still is there today I see it once in a while mm-hmm. and I just was so I don't know I was uh I was moved by that moment because yeah. typically that is the opposite of what you do with a Canadian film is a very cool thing to see at the very beginning yeah I mean and and you know to whatever degree we alienate, not even alienate, or, or maybe even just slightly bore our American listeners. Like, there is just something about it, and that that is a, that Canadian identity at play in our souls. Where, like, see the the water tower, um, their office, the original rim office is right next to a shopper's drug mart, which means nothing. But like, yeah. I don't know if you're from Boston, it's like seeing seeing uh, like a Wawa or, or Walgreens or I don't know, like stuff like that. Um, Dunkin Donuts. Yeah, like well, that's the thing. But like, I, clearly they didn't get cleared for Tim Hortons in this movie because they, they obviously have many meetings in a Tim Hortons, and you never see the logo, right? And just like the Leafs are never talked about, and that would have been an easy thing to do. And I wonder if they just didn't get that rights clearage. Um, well, so they did show like Toronto Maple Leafs games, and that was actually something that you've you pointed out before we even watched this movie is just from your experience with Matt Johnson's uh, show, Nirvana, the band, the show. Um, he has like this incredible legal team ran by this guy. I have the name here somewhere. Chris Where Perez. Chris Perez. Yeah. Um, who was able to get them all these real artifacts, real props, real footage of things that I don't know how most movies don't do it. Matt Johnson suggested that it comes down to laziness or people not wanting to challenge authority. Typically fear fear yeah um which all that actually makes perfect sense i'm not ripping on people who don't choose to like take the extra step to do this level of realism but that's why he said that they were able to get like the real comic books mention like the real movie names of real movies that they're watching show um, clips of raiders show clips. and like wear wearing like a late they live shirt and you know stuff yes. like that all, all these things that make it actually feel grounded in reality and showing, like Tim said, like we see the Shoppers Drug Mart. We see mm. the Bank of Montreal yeah. sign. Mm-hmm. Like that's done in a nice vintage, I should say. Um, there, there's a lot of really important aspects of realism, which actually, once again, taps into the very yeah. traditional idea of a Canadian aesthetic. And then, I mean, other, other than that, film. there's a couple other things I wanted to touch on. Like I, I think uh, in Matt Johnson interviews I listened to, he does mention that he's like, you know, 
he likes that this movie's about the smartphone and that Canada made it and nobody really cares and no one remembers necessarily. And that's kind of distinctly funny in the way that these things happen to Canada. And it's always funny. But he said, you know, the movie itself to him on a script level is about independent filmmaking. It's about that that uh, where where uh, work meets friendship or where artistic integrity meets commerce and to what degree you're going to compromise to still be a part of the conversation, to still be a competitor, to still make money. Um, and yeah, so like this movie, as we, you've already mentioned, like this movie has so much movies in it. Like Matt Johnson's Doug, I think the first written line in the movie is um, after the Arthur C. Clarke intro, which I want to talk about as well, um, is he's quoting, he's quoting a John Hughes movie about when your heart dies. I think that's the first actual line in the movie is Doug quoting John Hughes. Um, and, you know, like the the sort of like um, the shorthand for the rim culture is movie night. And like that's sort of the the plot function of when you cancel movie night, that that's when you know the company has become something else. You hire Michael Ironside to belittle your your friends who are your your staff members. Yeah, it makes you a more productive company. But at what cost? Your core. Yeah. And then, I mean, I just, I, I wanted to point out that, like, I think that one of the best yeah. examples yeah. Of, of that sort of comparison is um, is when they first meet Carrie Elwes and they start in media res in that meeting. And he's bragging about how he invented the two liter, uh, and I'll put it in, in air quotes, soda, right? Which, of course, that's so American that he's calling it soda, that we would call it pop. Um, but can you, can you think of anything as um, just, like, banal? as someone bragging about inventing the two liter pop, which I'm sure like that's a huge business innovation and it's just inherently so boring. And like, I really love that scene and that's not the scene we're talking about, but like you can imagine a movie exec talking about how they came up with like the, I don't know, charging for real butter. (laughs) Right. And being like that boosted our stock prices 18%. And he's so genuinely happy with himself and you're like this is the dumbest thing i've ever heard someone it's also like an inherently super american thing right it's an over oversized giant giant sugar oversized unhealthy and uh extensively packaged product you know it's something Mm -hmm. that was innovative because it gives you more of something that's worse for you and uh you know what maybe i should just leave it right on that note that's America. Right. And hey, listen, listen, I was, I was a kid. I grew up. I, I, I liked a two liter of Barks with a, with a pizza from Godfathers, but that's just, that's just me. Man, Barks um, is good root beer. It is. It's the best one. And then lastly, I do just want to like, this movie is actually a lot of, about a lot of things. I think it's paced very well. I think it moves really fast. It does. And they're able to touch on lots of stuff where I think like Johnson's like, Listen, we can put this in here and the movie doesn't have to be about it, but it's worth noting. So the movie opens with a pretty famous Arthur C. Clarke uh, voiceover. These things will make possible a world in which we can be in instant contact with each other, wherever we may be. It will be possible in that age, perhaps only 50 years from now, for a man to conduct his business from Tahiti or Bali just as well as he could from London. You know, this is back when he's writing books and when he's active that like the modern advent of telecoms technology will allow you to work from anywhere. No one will have to commute anymore. Our lives will become way better. You can do your your efficiency is going to boost so much that you're only going to have to work a couple hours a day to get all the work done you would have anyway. 
And I think this this is another thing that aligns with the social network where this movie is just a, just in this moment where the social network is in its entirety um, about this sort of shift in technology and society. And I, I really like, I find that Arthur C. Clarke opening to be so depressing because the fact is we all know that's not how it worked. Most people are still commuting. Our highways here around Toronto and I'm sure in LA and New York and Boston and Texas everywhere, these major city centers, the highways are, are just like choked full of commuters. Um, this technology promised so much and we took that efficiency and just turned it in a way to be expected to do more in those eight hours a day instead of having more leisure time. Right. Um, like uh, that idea ties to like the really famous Canadian cultural theorist, Marshall McLuhan, who we've talked about on this before, mm-hmm. yep. um, who had all these same ideas, but had the fear of what technology would take over in our day-to-day yeah. lives, mm-hmm. which was things like efficiency. Like he, he had this idea that it wasn't going to become efficient because we were going to become too attached and we would never be able to remove ourselves from the technology yeah. and what it does to us. Um, so once again, inherently like a little Canadian centric mm-hmm. there too. And the other thing with, with Clark is it just like, it reveals a bit of a short sightedness about Clark's perspective because he believed in people and how they would harness technology as a tool. Just like how Lazaridis is like, I made the perfect phone. It has exactly what you need as a user. And he just was not remotely ready for the fact that Apple would make something seemingly cooler with a number of other compromises. Um, But also all the telecoms providers would go to that because they, they realize data is so much bigger market than minutes is. Right. And it's just like this, this design friendly thing. And like, you know, BlackBerry also had free secure messaging, um, which was not something that's really been replicated in any way, because even when you move something like WhatsApp was free, encrypted end to end messaging, and now Meta owns it. So you're like, is it really right? Um, There are these things that like the movie isn't on its surface about them, but these real tragedies in the way that people have adopted technology. And I mean, I don't, I, I was curious how you feel about Tay, but like, it, I personally, I like a hard keyboard on my phone. I was just a little bit too young. And also when I was allowed to get a smartphone by my, when my parents let me get one, um, to really use a Blackberry. But I remember in, in school stage plays every now and then we'd have to, we'd be putting on a play that's modern set and people had phones and we just had like this bin of old Blackberries and just sitting there clicking the keyboard. He's right. It's so satisfying. It is. Yeah. And like I said, my dad had them and then my sister mm-hmm. actually broke her phone at one point when we, she was in high school or like maybe just out of high school. And I remember it was a very funny thing because she had to get like the worst Blackberry phone that you could get at the time, which we <laughs> called the brick. I remember and yeah. it was heavy and dense and the mm-hmm. only navigation was the side scroll wheel on the side. Yeah. Oh um, man. And it was awesome. Like this phone lasted yeah. three years. It was dropped. Yeah. I think it went in some water at one point. Like Solid, this was an amazing, amazing phone. It, what a piece mm-hmm. of technology. And like just, I actually would never have thought like it was all made in Canada up until a certain point, to be honest. Yeah. I, like That's a really cool part about the movie. And and I, I, you know, I feel the same way where I can see the sort of Steve Jobs thing where he's like, this keyboard is taking up half your screen even when you don't need it. And he was foreseeing the fact that like people were going to sure. watch videos and stuff like that. 
I'm just of I'm of the flavor where like I don't want to watch a video on my phone. It's a small bad experience. Yeah, same. I don't like using YouTube on my phone because the ads are pervasive, and I can't stand typing on a touch thing because like I've been doing it for how many years now? Fifteen years, sixteen years. I'm still bad at it. I'm still inaccurate. There's no way to get faster at typing on a touch keypad. There's nothing. There's no reference for your. It drives me nuts. I I I definitely like. I really felt that when Lazaridis yeah. is like that's stupid no one will want that and when he starts yelling about like i made this product class i made it and it's like a very kind of like indignant moment it's very childish but you're like man it's tough for that guy i can't imagine you did make this thing that works so well that that you know they call it the crackberry and then steve job comes along and he's like i'm going in the opposite direction and it will be the most popular thing ever doesn't that just give you the best analogy to blockbuster filmmaking versus like a more personal filmmaking. Isn't that just like the perfect uh, analogy to that? Yeah. Once again, Matt Johnson talks about Mm -hmm. that, but that's, I think that that's like part of what he sinks into this movie is like, because he has that ideology. I know that from his interviews that he Mm -hmm. believes that if you have a tight knit team that can build a good product together and be on the same page, you will come up with, maybe a less commercially successful product, but it will be very good, very strong, and it will last versus the Mm -hmm. very mundane quality of a paint-by-numbers blockbuster film that has all the beats you've already seen, but it does hit the market in exactly the precise way where it will touch everybody just enough to get your money and it won't leave a lasting impact. Mm -hmm. I think an interesting series... Of films would be to go look at every Marvel movie and then look at the movie that the director made before they made that movie. Because Marvel will Ooh, scoop up good one. these interesting young indie directors and they put them on a movie and half of those movies are just horrible because like these people are put into an ecosystem that doesn't make any sense to them. The movie's been pre-vised before they come on board. Right. And they're like, well, whatever you do to the script, it has to meet this big bad guy fight at the end. Stuff like that. It's that's a whole other conversation. But it's 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 100 percent that. That's a good idea, though, Tim. Yeah. Like um, right away, right off the bat, I'm thinking like Shane Black, Iron Man, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Right? It's like, really? Yeah. Or like, uh, you know, Michael B. Jordan, you know, uh, Fruitvale Station to Black yeah. Panther. Well, I think it was Creed and yep. Black Panther, but still. Yes. Creed, yeah. Creed but rules, too. We'll say Fruitvale. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I think uh, we should probably get to this uh, to this scene, Taylor. Sure, sure, sure. Um, actually, one other cinematography note I just wanted to mention before we get in the yeah, scene, yeah. and then we can talk about this as we get into the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, they shot this movie on my favorite camera in the world, which is the Ari Alexa Mini. I knew yeah. it as soon as Tim put the movie on. <laughs> I called it, and I was right. Um, they used an incredible lens that was a 24 to 290 millimeter lens, which is freaking so cool i just loved seeing this thing um and yeah they have like this really amazing cinematography that, throughout the film that i just i wanted to shout at the camera and lens right now and then we will get into like what actually is happening when we get into our scene mm-hmm. here so our scene for the day is called well the pitch or as tim refers to it try with your thumbs yeah that's that's what they title it in the uh, scene selection oh perfect let's yeah. keep it at that then so this scene takes place 38.10 to 47.15. It's a nine-minute scene where they make the pitch to AT&T. So after scrambling to make a prototype, Mike Lazaridis and Jim Balsilli travel to New York. They meet with the AT&T team and pitch 
the new product that will become the BlackBerry. This is a pretty robust scene. It moves quick. It has great pacing, great uh, emotional responses, great performances. Um, but I think the reason we picked this scene initially, Tim, was because we felt that this was a great indication of who both Balsilli and Lazaridis are, and the performances kind of show us two different ways of handling these characters here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's actually some fairly subtle stuff going on here that only yes. when I started studying the scene that I saw the work that it was doing. Um, so, I mean, there, yeah, there were lots of reasons we want to talk about this. Like, there's some great... Um, production choices, some period setting stuff. Like I love the Air Canada mm-hmm. lounge, uh, like or like the gate. It's not sure. the lounge, but you get the old Air Canada um, logos, things like that. But set in front of all this stuff, because I, I think a lot of the stuff could be fairly um, indulgent for a filmmaker to be like, I want, I want to see the uh, you know the '90s Canada setting for all this stuff, and that's part of it. But that's all backgrounding pretty pretty critical character work so like even just showing like Balsilli sitting at the gate he's on time he knows what he's doing and Lazaridis rushes into the scene and like drops his the case with the prototype in it and like there's very basic sort of a b character comparisons to make there but then when they get into the cab after they land you know Lazaridis is saying sorry they talk about how um Balsilli is willing to lie hey we got to move here man my wife's in labor and they, they show his business sense, too. He says, when I crumple a paper, that means stop talking. And then they set the stakes as well. He says, like, I didn't quit my job. I was fired. And I just mortgaged my house to pay our staff. So if this doesn't work out, I'm f***ed. And then even more character stuff where he's like, why do they fire you? And Balsillie says, because they're idiots, which will be a callback later. Right? So they're setting up this. This is something that I didn't really see the first the first time I was watching through that like there is this common ground between Balsilli and Lazaridis where they're both somewhat ego focused people where they're like I know what's best in this given situation and then because they're idiots is going to be my my little like my white lie to cover it so like way later in the movie when Lazaridis is asked about whether Apple's going to be a problem for them so why are people telling me that they're about to kill us because they're idiots right. They they show where they they there's a bit of a Venn diagram overlap in terms of their egos and and even though Lazaridis has made the perfect device by so many metrics and even though Balsilli is good at what he does and knows how to sell this stuff and knows how to grow a company, um, their ego is going to get the better of them at some point. Yeah, but you also see in this scene why they were such a good team together because you have two sides of the coin kind of covered like you're saying, like both fueled by like this idea of being the best and this comes from a personal place, but you have the tech side and you have the business side. And at this particular moment in world history, electronics history, this is what you needed. This was the perfect tandem to get this job done. Um, yeah, there's and, literally no overlap in their skill set. Yeah, there yeah is exactly. A, there's they a cover vast each gulf other. between like Lazaridis has no business sense and there's a great part later in the sequence where they cut to him. It's such a wise choice. They cut to him when he hiccups or like burps. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't have to be in the movie. I mean, it does, but like, you know, it definitely wasn't in the script and it's such a good choice. And then, you know, he's spilling stuff on his shirt and he forgets the prototype in the car. There's all this stuff. Well, that's and so that's what I was like going to mention rug. about the, the shirt yeah. particular is another point of contrast because yeah. Balsilli brings him his suit. And then when they get to mm-hmm. New York, 
he's in the suit that Balsilli brought him and he spills on it in the car like a, yeah. a fruit stain <laughs> like it's a mm. bad stain like it's a red stain on the front of the shirt just really good stuff and then stuff. on the on the inverse on the inverse side of that uh like the rug pull when the executive go Saul Rubinek the great Saul Rubinek goes you're not a tech guy are you and you're like oh no like you yeah. just get a cold sweat because you're like this all sounds he it's a great pitch i think it's real smart like it's maybe it's obvious i mean i'm not a business guy i don't really think you are either taylor but like i think it plays really well like well paul silly might kind of pull this off even alone and then the rug pull you're just like whoa that like the bottom just falls out of your stomach i think maybe the coolest part about this scene for me rewatching it and rewatching it is that there's like the one shot that kind of covers all these emotional bits before they get into the office or before they get into mm-hmm. the meeting. And it's when it's all in one shot where Jim is reacting to the news that they left the prototype in the cab. So Jim goes yeah. to the secretary, gets the pen. And as he pulls back, you see Mike enter the elevator in the background. Yeah. And he yeah. watches Mike leave. You as the audience know that Mike's, you, you assume he's not coming back. He's freaked out. Mm-hmm. And he, you see all the up. calculations in Balsilli's head. And then it racks focus to him. And, he, and as the secretary says, they're ready for you. And his face is perfect. This is um, this is the Howerton performance of the film, in my opinion, because he mm. actually illustrates a sense of vulnerability in his face in this moment for the first and maybe only time in the movie. You see that he is scared about what just happened. He is unprepared and that nothing will scare him more than being unprepared. You can kind of say, see that in his reaction to Mike telling him he left the prototype in the cab. And it's it, set up in an earlier scene where he's like, I right. haven't read up on that with the yes. business he gets fired from. Right. Right. You're, you're right. That's a really good point where like it does. They kind of set up where he's like, as long as he's prepared, he can kind of do anything. He, he yeah. believes in himself. Yeah. And even to the point where he's like, just draw that. Just draw it for me on a piece of paper and mm-hmm. I can sell it. Yeah. And uh, that's not good enough for Mike. Um, and it leads to a couple of great moments because you also have Balsilli then kill it with his like meeting. Like you, you and I both yeah. look at this and be like, oh, he just killed that pitch. And you have yeah. like that, that note of, oh no, he didn't, he doesn't get it all. Like he's not, he doesn't actually know. Uh, <laughs> you are not a tech guy, are you? I'm not a... The whole world, the whole world, is trying to do emails on a cell phone. We had an entire division working on it for, I don't know, eight months or so. You know how many phones? They got to work at the same time. And the these guys know better. It doesn't even have value, right? Like yeah. Saul Rubinek's like, everyone in the world is trying to get email on your phone. And he's like, he's like, we tried it. We got 11 phones on it. You're like... What, like how do you get out of this yeah right and like i i think this this sequence just like after it sets the stakes which is like jim's house rim's future right it's their lives their livelihood it's like okay forgot the product and then lazarus just like pieces out <laughs> and then the value of the product is actually not it doesn't even matter if they had the prototype there ruben X like this is nothing this this means not this is valueless right you're in La La Land on this one, you know. You got, I think, you know, some nerds took you for a ride. It just keeps getting worse, and you don't actually. Every time it gets worse, you're like, "How could it get worse than this?" Right? And it really just like ratchets up the tension until Lazarus shows up again, and like pulls off like what feels like a magic trick. Yeah, I I love you know it's not um, 
it's not rocket science writing this moment in particular, but when he shows up and, you know, you got Saul Rubinek in the background saying like, Guys, I think the meeting's over. Did you just put your devices directly on the network as though they were clients? Uh, that's right. Yeah, right. So what did that get you, like, ten phones working at the same time? But he's, like, being held at the door by Ball Silly. It's a really great yeah. moment where you just are like, oh, but he's got this. Like, he's got this in the bag. He already, he's he's won the scenario. And you get, like, a great musical cue at this point where Lazaridis enters the office and starts telling them, like, what they're doing wrong. Okay, so here, here's your issue. Um, when, when you use a phone as a client, uh, what's it doing? It's just sitting on your network, constantly asking uh, the same question. Uh, uh, did I get an email? Did I get an email? Did I get an email? So it is forever pulling on your servers whether you got an email or not. And it's, mm. it's such uh, a cheerful moment in like one of these types of movies where you need those moments to like understand your character and to cheer for them the rest of the movie. And it's this moment for Lazaridis where he sells the product. He takes over this meeting yeah. and um, you feel well, similar, so good. It, it, yeah. It has a similar function that we talked about in social network where like you have that opening scene, second scene of Zuckerberg actually showing that he knows what he's talking about. And that that's kind of at play here where you're like, okay, like we actually have to see like, why did the Blackberry matter? Yeah. And I like that the scene is arranged and it's not like the thing that like sticks the landing is the design of the phone with the try with your thumbs, the wheel, the hard yeah. keyboard. But like the thing that actually mattered, the thing that changed the industry was this innovation in server architecture, which is mm -hmm. not remotely sexy, but I think they do a very economical job of explaining where they're like his his thing where he's like uh, let me guess you set it up where your phone's asking every like 60 times a second do I have any emails do I have any emails even that like you don't have to know anything about technology to be like I assume that would be bad right for like a yeah. service to work it's, that way it's doing and a good then job he starts saying like it. what we do is we set up your phone as a server and we don't have to understand the rest we just know that he flipped it on its head and it records the actual innovation that changed the world in terms of how smartphones worked. This was the real nugget, but like the thing, the one-two punch is like, that gets him to be like, can we see it? And then he shows it to him, type with your thumbs, and then the the very obvious but undeniably effective cut of what do you call it, hard cut to, you know, six years later, right? Well, it's not quite a hard cut, Tim. We have the Strokes mm. song, Someday, it's true. Enter the Fray. Yes, the Strokes which... do... The Strokes uh, J cut in, you know. Can I, can I say that this is one of the more dis? I first of all, I love the Strokes. I love Julian Casablancas. I love this album that someday is on. Uh, is this it? Whatever. Um, I could take or leave this song. God damn it, Matt Johnson, come up with the Canadian song. Get a Canadian right? artist yeah, in there. Like, give me something a little bit better. I just, I also feel like it's a little like oh, put okay. some like Sloan Money City Maniacs right there. Yeah, yo, man, the siren come in, right? <laughs> right? Like, yeah, I just, that's I'm like, great. I'm like, there's yeah. a, there's a Canadian, there's like a Canadian content missing here. <laughs> yeah, that's um, a good point. But uh, no, this the scene is fantastic for so many reasons. Um, I did say earlier I wanted to talk about cinematography. Um, one of the things Matt Johnson said about it, um, because he, you know, just going off of what you just said about how the script kind of shorthands a lot of the technological explanation for us, which is so important in a film like this. Mm -hmm. um, you try to make it accessible. You don't want to bore people. Um, and one of the ways he said, he, he, you know, he was saying, we only had 
a handful of lines in the whole movie about technology and the way we needed to show the process and innovation of it was through the camera work where you have a lot of the tech work happening in the foregrounds and backgrounds and surroundings of the shots and you just live with all of your cinematography like kind of operating in that way where you see your subject but you also see people working around them constantly and it just gives you this sense like of innovation creativity technological advancement all these things and the way that he shoots this scene is no different than the office scenes that I'm referring to. He's shooting on a long lens um, through multiple planes of glass at times, like through the office windows, and it works so effectively in creating this air of realism, uh, creating a sense of like approachability to the characters, like you could reach out and touch them kind of thing. And um, it's once again coming back to Matt Johnson's incredible eye for docu-realism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I I think this movie is just, like, it's such a good choice to shoot it this way. And in one of the interviews, he talked about how, like, he was talking about, I can't remember, it's a um, it's a documentary about the Clinton, like, um, campaign for presidency. Oh, uh, yeah. And how, like, at the beginning, when, like, the stakes are lower, they're like, well, he might not even be a contender. The, the focal lengths on the camera are pretty short. Like, the cameras are within a couple feet of the guys. And then by the end, when they have a lot on the line, the camera lenses are super long. It's like they're shooting, like, like uh, lions in the jungle that they can't get near. Right. And he wanted that to be sort of a similar case here, where, like, as the movie going on, just to sort of subtly... In, the, in your lizard brain, make it clear that the stakes are higher. They keep shooting their subjects from further and further away whenever they can, through more panes of glass, through wider buildings and things like that. Um, yeah, like I said, this, I think lens really a, neat. this lens was a 24 to 290, meaning at 24, you are very wide. Like you, That's a very standard wide lens. It's about as wide as the standard movie will go, is a 24. Yeah. And then 290 is incredibly zoomed in. That's a... That's a that's, high that's telephoto. A, a long ways away. So, did you see what speed? Sorry to get into lenses for a second. F two eight. Did you see what speed that was? That's insane. Yeah, that's yeah. so fast. I mean, just to put it in perspective, though, like I shoot on lenses. I shoot on the twenty or, or the seventy to two hundred, which is f two eight, which is pretty man, sweet in itself. But like, this is just that's taking a narrow that and, margin, man, and adding uh, adding a ton to both ends. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'm thinking of the best lens I work with. And, yeah. yeah, if you're a 2.8 and who knows if they ever shot at 2.8, but if you're in 2.8 and you're trying to get someone's eyes in focus and you're at full 2.90, that's insane. And I, mean, well, I that's guess why if they I like, shot at like, 2.8. They would have shot yeah. some, at least a, um, a lot of it in 2.8, I would guess. Yeah. Because uh, I, I, I'm sure we watched the same thing that to get the handheld effect, they essentially, you mount the camera on this like inflatable airhead yep. that gets built in that allows for some shake because there's no way a person could hold this thing. And well, shoot it's well. a really and also, heavy like, lens. You won't get the dolly shots or the tracks or anything that you want either. It's a pretty cool thing that I yeah. I didn't know about until I watched the little cinematography featurette. Yeah, I've actually I've never used one of those before. Um, I've never really shot anything that was intentionally designed to look handheld like this. Um, mm-hmm. It's really cool to see the how it works though, because obviously I've worked with sliders, I've worked with kind of different like heads on on the tripod and on the camera, but yeah, this was really interesting because I always. Or I was questioning how they got this aesthetic with such a heavy camera. Uh, I fig- I knew it was an Ari. I figured it was just the Alexa, not the Alexa Mini. But um, Alexa Mini is a lot cheaper, to be honest. But um, this this aesthetic would not work if you actually put this camera on your cam operator's shoulders. It just wouldn't because you, you'd never yeah. get the stability. 
you'd never get the precision that you need for racking focus at this length. Mm-hmm. And it just gives you so much more freedom if you're locked on a tri- or a slider because you're still moving yeah. quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm. And the other thing to note about these long telephoto shots is that you also have to really have good audio recording on site. Yeah. You need to have your characters mic'd really, really well because your boom mics are nowhere near your characters when you're recording you're some of this. You're not going to be anywhere close. So that's another thing might not be considered when you're seeing some of these really long lens shots, but it's very well, difficult. And I just want to say to their credit, when when Balsili uh, sort of blows his top for like a split second when he finds out that the prototype was left, the sound design, like the, the way, like Glenn Howard can scream. He can yell oh, yeah. with the best of them. And the way that they capture it, it just, it sounds great. It's a, it's a thing that's easy to overlook, but I can't imagine it's easy to record that well. Um, I want to say that's the widest shot in the whole scene we're talking about today. That one shot probably, there. Yeah. Cause they want to show you the environment that he's yelling in. Yeah. He's losing his mind for just a split second. Then he reins it back in. And then yeah. again, like I'd say if I'm, if I'm concluding or wrapping up this scene, like the sort of, it's all these things working together and it makes it feel really good to watch it. The stakes are so clearly set. It gets worse so many times. And after one or two times, you're like, how could it be worse than this? And like, we've all given presentations, whether in school or whatever, job interviews, you know what this feels like. And it's just like, I think it's, I think it's just really phenomenal, like pacing and direction. Like I think this, this sequence knows exactly what it has to do. And I think it does it really well. Yeah. You know, Tim and I like to talk about scenes that set up our characters for future decisions and uh, uh, perspectives and I think this scene really showcases both characters at the height of their contribution to the company in many ways Balsili mm-hmm. does fall a little short in his presentation but you see the value of what he's able to bring to this team long term yeah. and I think that this scene just illustrates both so perfectly that it it carries a lot of the rest of the movie on its shoulders this scene yeah, I mean, with that, we'll move to some shout-outs. I had a lot to choose from personally, but, I mean, another thing, because I, I feel like this movie, there's a couple times where blink and you'll miss it, some very economical storytelling. And late in the movie, I think, to telegraph how far the company has changed from its friendly culture, movie nights, everyone knows everybody. Um, it's this team effort and team product. Is There's this single shot. And it's pretty close to when Doug exits the movie and exits Rim. Uh, it's Doug with a name tag. I think it starts on his name tag and zooms out a little bit. And that tells you uh, everything yeah. you need to know about what's changed in it. That like, why why would this guy ever need a name tag? It's How impersonal. could there possibly be any strangers on the Rim staff? So I want to shout that out. That's super smart. And it's very, I missed it the first time I saw the movie. I only caught it the second time. Really, really economical storytelling. That's, that's Spielberg stuff right there. Yeah, that's really good. Um, Matt Johnson... We, I don't even think we mentioned that he played the third lead in the movie too, but really impressive yeah. job with the character. <laughs> yeah. Add some much needed levity, obviously some improvised stuff when, when he's calling Balsilia a very sassy man at the end of the <laughs> sequence when they first meet him. That's just him having fun. And again, like, you know, go check out his TV show or, uh, we will, or, or uh, you know, his other movies too, which are automatically in our recommendations, but we're recommending some other stuff. Yes. Um, my shout out is another Matt Johnson moment in the film where his character, Doug, uh, is trying to reach Jim and Mike through a pane of glass. Jim and Mike are already having a discussion and Doug comes to the window with the exact idea that they're looking for and they just keep talking. 
maybe top guys from Motorola or Microsoft or Google. Okay. Wait, what, 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 are, you, what are you doing? Who else? Where else? John Carmack. Get John Carmack from ID. Can you guys hear me? And he questions whether they can hear him. It's a it's a hilarious yeah. moment for me. Like I I was I was dying laughing at this moment. It's mm-hmm. like perfectly executed comedy, and it ends with like the final beat of the scene is just great. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Oh shit. Uh, and it actually has like um, context that's important for the film. You know, you have co- the um, there's visual context here. You know, your two leads, uh, Mike and. Jim talking and then Doug it kind of in the background splitting the two up uh, there's like some mm. cool, cool visual play there but also it's just like a very it's more than anything it's just funny it's a funny moment in the movie yeah yeah he's, it, there's some really funny stuff and that's a great sequence where he can't tell if they can hear him or not and mm-hmm. they just let it they, they again like that's where they kind of let the air out of the room and they just let it keep going there are these parts where you're like anyone else would have cut this sequence yeah. already but yeah. like it's it, it's works and it's kind of necessary it keeps it a little light um and then for recommendations, I'm just, you know, calling out a Canadian movie that you can tell was shot in a Canadian town. Uh, I'm doing Denny Villeneuve's Enemy. Uh, again, one of the Villeneuve's we're probably not going to talk about in this podcast. Very interesting movie. Very different from Blackberry, but uh, very recognizable. You can tell that's in Canada. And one thing I wanted to tag on to your it just remind remembered. Um, I'll link in the show notes Tony Joe's uh, Every Frame of Painting episode, Vancouver Never Plays Itself. And that's, uh, yeah, it's based on the documentary LA never always plays itself. Um, or, uh, sorry, Los Angeles never plays itself, but it's the same idea that Vancouver is a popular place to film stuff. And it's often made to look not like Canada, just like Tay was talking about. So check that out. It's a nice little video. Yeah. Um, this movie, fun fact shot in Hamilton, Ontario entirely, which is mm-hmm. fantastic. Um, the place where Jim was going to bring the hockey team. Yeah. Which is very funny. Um, and my recommendation is actually uh, a Matt Johnson uh, essential, like he one of the movies he's cited as one of his biggest influences. Um, I think it's one of the most important films ever made because it truly destroyed the sacredness of documentary uh, in a way that completely will unravel you if you have not seen this movie. It's called Man Bites Dog. It's from 1992, directed by Benoit Poulvord, Remy Belvaux, and Andre Bonzel. Um, It's a Dutch-French film um, that follows a documentary crew who is following a real murderer. And he, Mm -hmm. like, it's very, uh, it was very innovative for its time. No one was really making self-aware documentary even at this point. And this movie takes that and goes goes so much further with it. And uh, like I said, it really disrupts your, the sanctity of the documentary film tradition and it kind of ruined it for the best, for the betterment of the genre, I would say, because people like Matt Johnson have learned what you can do with movies like this or uh, Orson yeah. Welles' F is for Fake um, is another really good mm-hmm. one. But uh, Man Bites Dog, if you really want something that will disrupt that idea of traditional documentary, that's the movie for you. Absolutely. And with that, we'll wrap up uh, Blackberry, a very Canadian episode. Uh, we'd appreciate it if you would, uh, you know, do something to honor Canada today. You know, um, type with your thumbs, uh, watch a Denny Villeneuve movie, watch a Cronenberg movie, you know, put on Schitt's Creek. I don't know. Take some penicillin, make a phone yeah, call, corded. Yeah. 
Shoot some hoops. <laughs> yeah, shoot some hoops. <laughs> keep your stick on the ice. Yeah, keep yeah, definitely keep your stick on the ice. If she don't uh, find you handsome, she would should at least find you handy. <laughs> Catch you later. <laughs> <laughs>